Uh, good morning, everybody. I'm Ed Glaze, one of the pastors here. It's great to have you all here with us uh, today, this morning. Let us uh, go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Lord, we come before you right now, grateful for that great grace that you have given to us, most especially the grace that you've offered to us in Jesus Christ. We're grateful, Lord, that people are responding to that grace, uh, showing how much this church does care for its community. So bless the offerings, Lord so that the name of Jesus is lifted up and people will know his grace and his mercy and love through what our congregation does in his name. Amen. Good to see you here this morning. Welcome folks from Florida. I know it's a little bit cold for you all, but I know what that's like. I'm from down deep south too. So um, when you're talking about uh, Jesus created the snow and everything like that, I said, did he really? But yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah it, we know that's a part of, of God's creation, uh, too. We're starting today a series of sermons on uh, our basic United Methodist beliefs, uh, particularly this belief about grace. And it is something that is truly marvelous and truly wonderful. I do see in the bulletin that we were singing Love, uh, uh, Love Divine, All Loves It Son, but I guess we're not doing that right now. So we'll, 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 we'll wait, do that at another time. But I'm here to tell you that we have this unique concept of grace, and I'm going to unpack that for us as we uh, get into uh, this wonderful understanding of who we are as United Methodists. So here now the word of the Lord is found in Ephesians chapter 2, uh, starting with verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy, out of the great love which he loved for us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of work, so that you, no one may boast. For we are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Yeah, we're going to start a five-week series about grace and about how God works in and through our life in this marvelous concept that we emphasize in our United Methodist tradition about grace. We believe that God leads with grace, for God is love, and the way we know this love is through God's graceful way of relating to us in the world. Now, the founder of Methodism, a fellow named John Wesley, uh, didn't come up with too many new ideas, but what he did is he borrowed from this group and, and begged from that group, and he came up with this wonderful concept of this way of salvation we call uh, the way of God's grace. He borrowed from uh, the Calvinist tradition, this notion of common grace, which we'll unpack a lot today called provenient grace. He, he gets this concept of being justified through grace uh, by faith through the Reformation and Martin Luther. And then he studied a lot the Eastern Orthodox tradition. And as we talk in our third week, he, he sees that we are called to grow in grace, be sanctified in grace. For us, grace is a dynamic process. It's not something that stands still. It is something for this life. It is something that works actively in us. 
You do hear sometimes people say, you know, I, I was saved on a certain date and, you know, that's all they, they talk about. And, and that's fine. We, we'll get into that some as we talk about justifying grace next week. But we know that grace is something that we grow into in this life. And, that, and that's something so beautiful. Jesus calls us in John 10 to a life that is abundant. And as we grow in grace, we see that abundance growing. And it's not just something for the here and now. It's grace and abundance that's eternal, forever. So we're going to talk a whole lot about grace over the next five weeks. That's something pretty cool, isn't it? In this world that's so filled with meanness and so filled with division and strife. If you took time to read my newsletter I penned and sent out, uh, via email this past week. And if you don't get those things, I encourage you to sign up for a way of communicating through email uh, on our church website. And also the text of encouragement, too. Those are something that are pretty cool, I think, too. I talked about how Wesley understood grace. He gave this example of a house. He said, provenient grace, which we'll talk about today, is the porch where you, you know, step foot on the porch and, you know, a lot, a lot of people come to the porch of the house, you know, folks that are selling things, the mailman, someone that's kind of acquaintance to you, a neighbor, you know, that's the, where everybody hangs out, sort of, the porch. But then there's that special moment when you decide to accept the invitation of the, the gracious owner and say, come on in. And at that moment, when you step through the doorway, that's this justifying grace that will discuss a lot next week, where you come into this relationship with that person who's so gracious that it welcomes you into the home, and then that's not it. We get to then rummage around the house. And as we grow more acquainted with the person, as we grow more familiar with the one who owns the house, this gracious host, welcomes us in, well, we get more acquainted and more in love with that person as we plop down on the couch in the living room and eat uh, at the kitchen table where only those who are true friends get to eat and maybe even spend the night in one of the bedrooms. As C.S. Lewis puts it, we go further up and further in. That's what this grace is all about. It's something that's dynamic that we grow in all the days of our lives, all the days of our lives. You know, as we read uh, this morning, that there is this love, this mercy that precedes everything that we respond to. That for God's great love, God's great mercy, Paul writes there in Ephesians. This is this love that is made known to us before we're even aware of it. That's what this provenient grace is what we're talking about. The word provenient comes from the Latin word meaning go before. This going before grace is a part of who we are and our understanding of who God is. This grace that is there that surrounds us. It's first made known as we'll talk about in the next sermon series in how God self-limited God's self coming out of the realm of the spirit to create this vast universe the supernovas down to the tiniest insect and everything in between is an act of God's graciousness for us. Everything was made by God out of grace. We read in Genesis chapter 1 these words, after every day where God made light, God separated the waters from uh, the sky and the earth. God created all the creatures of the, of the earth and the birds of the skies, the fish in the sea. He said this, my, my, that is mighty good. 
And then when he created you and me and all the people, he went, my, 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 my. It is very good. We live in a grace-charged world. That's the theme of the whole series. A grace-charged world. We're surrounded in grace. When I went to Emory University many moons ago, I had the great privilege of being instructed in homiletics, which is a fancy term for preaching, by, at the time, one of the ten best proclaimers of the gospel in the world, and that's a guy named Fred Craddock. You've heard me talk about him before. And I took one class with Fred, which is a small class, went the introduction to preaching. It was one, uh, uh, I would say a more advanced class because some of us need more help than others. So I, I was in the small group with, with, with Dr. Craddock, and we got to preach sermons and put them on VHS tape. Some of you all might remember those things. And uh, he watched that tape of me preaching, and then we got called in, I got called in the office, like we all did, and he critiqued the sermon as we went through it. Now, uh, I don't remember a lot about that, that critique, except I needed a lot of help. But I, it was about grace. I do remember that. And uh, at the end of the time there, we just had some, some moments to philosophize together. I said, Dr. Craddock, you know, I, I, I'm having trouble with this concept of grace. Why don't you, why don't you help me on that? He had a PhD, so he, you know, he was pretty smart. And as Dr. Craddock was one to do, he said, well, let me tell you a story. He said, I was riding on an elevator one time with a friend in Washington, D.C., and John Ehrlichman stepped on the elevator. Now, some of y'all might remember who John Ehrlichman was. He was one of Nixon's henchmen that took part in the Watergate plot, uh, was arrested and put in prison for several years. And so here he was on the elevator with Fred and his friend, and after a few floors, Ehrlichman hopped off the elevator. And Fred said, my, my friend said, oh, well, there's one guy that doesn't deserve any grace. And Fred said this to the guy, well, my friend, you don't understand what grace is. And Fred left it at that. That's how he did sometimes. <laughs> you know, he, he, he'd just leave you and think about, well, okay, what are you talking about? And, you know, pinheaded me from Alabama, had to ask, Dr. Craddock, what do you mean by that? Don't just leave me hanging there that yeah, you don't understand what grace is. And I'll never forget his response. He said, Ed, if you're a fish, grace is the water you're swimming in. If you're a bird, it's the air underneath your wings. Grace is nev never deserved, never earned. It's just there. Just there. Or the way I've heard it put in South Alabama one time, uh, Yankee, someone from up north, ate breakfast at a small country diner in, in South Alabama. And with the breakfast came grits, and the fellow said, I didn't order these. What are these? And the waitress said, Hun, those are grits. You don't order them, they just come with the meal. <laughs> That's the way it is with grace, y'all. You don't order it. It just comes with your life. We are surrounded by this reality of grace. It's the air which we breathe. It's the water in which we swim. It's just there. Grace. 
God's grace. And some implications of that are this, you know, that Wesley talked about uh, humanity being earthen vessels filled with heavenly treasure. I like that. We're all earthen vessels filled with heavenly, heavenly treasure. He had this optimism of grace, even dealing with the worst of sinners, that God was somehow at work in that person's life, even before that person was ever aware of it, that that person had within his or her life this heavenly treasure that God had placed into that person from before that person was ever born. And that's one reason why we baptize babies, y'all, is that we realize that God's work is in that is going on in that person's life. God's work in that person's life, even before the baby's aware of it. And so, therefore, grace is at work in people. Grace is there in somebody, even we, when they don't realize it, even when they don't comprehend it. And therefore, we are ones to offer grace in an optimistic way, saying, seeing how God is working in that person's life. And how does it work in our lives? Well, I have two suggestions. One is the work of conscience. Paul writes in Romans 1 that before we're even aware of things, and we have no excuse about this, that God's reality of good and evil is made known to everybody. Everyone knows about it. It is there. Now, some people choose not to listen to it, but this notion of conscience, this notion of, of what is right and wrong, it's something that we can be attuned to or something that we can deny and shut out. And the more we shut it out, the less we can hear it. But as we listen to God speaking to us in our conscious, helping us realize that, you know, we're not what we ought to be. Well, we can then respond to God's gracious invitation to be better. Any of y'all remember the first time your conscious spoke to you? You remember that? Maybe it's because I grew up in a pretty strict home. I remember for me that first time, I was five years old. I still remember this has made a big impact on me. We were living at Bitwater's Air Base outside of Ipswich, England, and I was a small kid, and I had a neighbor named Scotty. And Scotty had a matchbox car that I wanted. And I knew I wasn't going to get that matchbox car for a long time because it was nowhere near Christmas and nowhere near my birthday. And that's the only time I ever got anything, you know, gifts like that. So I said, you know, Scotty's got a matchbox car that I want. Well, I'm going to take that matchbox car when I'm over here playing, and, and he'll never know about it. So uh, when I was over there playing a few doors down from my house, I took the car, stole it, swiped it. That little five-year-old me, yeah, I know. <laughs> and when I got home, I felt so guilty. I did. I, I knew I had done wrong. And I did exactly what humans have been doing since the very beginning of Adam and Eve. I took that car and hid it in a heating grate in my folks' home there in that little base house on, on Bentwaters Air Base. And I never got it out again. When that house was tore down, I bet in the rubble was that little matchbox car sitting there because I felt so guilty about that. I had eaten of the apple, you see. And I know I had done something wrong. And trust me, that's not the only time my conscience has pricked me and, and let me know that I haven't been what I ought to be. But when we listen to our conscience, when we listen to that voice within us, that knowing that we aren't what we should be, we've done things we shouldn't have done and we've left neglected things that we ought to have done, guess what? That's our opportunity to respond to God's gracious invitation. God, 
forgive me. Help me to change. Help me to repent. Help me not to steal again. That is God's provenient grace working in your life. We dare not silence it. We dare not not pay attention to it. For it is God's way of helping us. That's why the psalmist says, Reveal in me, O Lord, my secret sins. Create in me a clean heart. Those are our ways of listening to God's voice. The other way that I think that God uh, speaks to us is this longing for something more. St. Augustine had this famous phrase, you've heard it, I know, quoted before, saying, Thou hast made us for thyself, and our hearts grow restless until we find a rest in thee. There is something in this for a longing for something more. C.S. Lewis talked about this this longing for joy. It was this longing for joy that brought C.S. Lewis, this great Christian thinker of the last century, this one who still influences the lives of so many people, It was this longing for joy that brought Lewis to faith. He realized that joy is a fleeting emotion, something that we long to have, and then once we get it, it's gone. You ever been there? Over the Christmas holidays, we went to Winston-Salem to hear the great symphony there and their great chorus do Handel's Messiah. Oh, it's beautiful. Was there there at at Wake Forest Chapel, beautiful setting, glorious decorations, lights all over. And and there we were listening to that wonderful music and they concluded the act one with a hallelujah chorus. And I mean, we stood up as you're supposed to do and we heard those beautiful strains of hallelujah and, and tears were coming down my eyes. This is so beautiful, so wonderful. And they finished Time for intermission. <laughs> we all sat down and, and we left. The music had died. Everyone was walking around, milling around, talking about what the weather was like, what they're getting for Christmas, where we're we going to go eat. I mean, the joy ended right then. And that's the way it happens in life, isn't it? That we experience something that stirs our heart, that's so wonderful. We hear some beautiful music, we see a beautiful sunset or sunrise, and we, we want to hold on to it forever, and we can't. Lewis put it this way, joy is always a reminder. It is something we never possess. It's something we always desire, a longing for something more, a longing for something about to be long ago, something that is about to be. We can't hold on to the joy. And as Lewis said, it is a reminder that it's not really the joy that we seek. It is a signpost of what we truly desire, which is Christ. And only Christ, as Augustine said, can fulfill the longing of our hearts. So, provenient grace, this grace that goes before us, it surrounds us, it's all around us. We hear about it, uh, helping us remember that, you know, we're not what we ought to be, and it helps us seek repentance, as we'll discuss more next week. It's this longing within us that reminds us that this is not our true home, that our true home is in heaven. And provenient grace has been working all throughout our lives. You know, the grace will lead us home, that line from 
from um, amazing grace. It, it works in us. And, and I, I encourage you as you go throughout this week to think about how God has been working in your life in ways that, you know, you didn't ask for, you didn't deserve, you didn't think about. Think about this grace that in my life, I mean, I, I don't remember asking to be born. You know, I, I, I don't know about you. Some of y'all may have sent a note to God. God, you know, I like to be born, but I, I never asked to be born. That, that's grace. It was an act of grace that I grew up in a, a Christian home. It was an act of grace that my parents, when they retired, wanted to retire two blocks from a United Methodist Church so that we could walk to church. It was an act of grace that had me in church that Sunday, as I'll talk about next week, uh, where I heard God say, I love you, and I want you to be more than who you are. And so I walked down the aisle and accepted this great gift of God's grace in Christ myself. And we'll talk about that justifying grace next week. And I have seen how grace has kept me out of a lot of things that I should have got myself into, but I nearly did. Think about that this week. As you look at your life, you know, think about how, you know, gosh, you know, there's God working there. God put that person in my life. God put me in that situation. God helped me through this difficult trial. And if you know some people that were agents of God's grace and they're still living, write them a note, give them a call, send them an email. Let them know, hey, you were used by God as an agent of God's grace to me. Two more things. One of them is maybe a little controversial, but, you know, hey, let's stir up some stuff, right? And the other is, well, not so much. But it's this notion in this pluralistic age of how God's grace works with people in other faith traditions. You know, think about that. That's something we ask ourselves as, as we get into uh, our work in the world as agents of God's grace through Jesus Christ. And again, this is a memory that as I was preparing the sermon, it came back to me. When I was in the Air Force and it, it became known uh, amongst the base and around town that I was going to uh, leave the service and go to seminary, uh, there's a guy in town that I'd worked with a lot, a prominent businessman named Gene. And Gene uh, came to me at some little function that we're at and said, well, Ed, I don't know how you can do what you're going to do. I said, why is that, Gene? He said, well, you know, if Gandhi goes to hell, I don't want to be a part of any faith that's like that, that says someone as good as Gandhi goes to hell. And I said, oh, my gosh. And he said, what do you make of that? And I did what I, I said to him what I did oftentimes when I was before the general and he's uh, getting on to me about something. I'd say, general, that's beyond my pay grade. I, you know, and <laughs> that's, what I, that's, that's what I said to Gene. Gene, that's beyond my pay grade. I, I, I don't know about that really. And the two classic responses to that question is that, well, obviously, Gandhi's in hell. He wanted to follow Jesus Christ. And the other response is on the other end of the perspective. It says everybody gets in. No, we have this view of universality because God's so loved. Every, everyone has eternal life in heaven. But guess what? Mr. Wesley offers us another way. He talks about this fancy term called pneumocentric soteriology. Say that with me and you can act smart. Pneumocentric soteriology. That means the spirit is leading in this act of salvation in ways that we can't comprehend. And so 
Therefore, the Spirit is at work in faithful people who are trying the best we can, looking at a positive way at Romans 1, their understanding of who God is. They are working as best they understand to live a life that's obedient to how they understand God as best they can. And that is so helpful, knowing that God is a God of justice and God is a God of understanding and God is willing to look at the intentions of people's hearts because there are folks, there are plenty of people in history who have never heard the name of Jesus. And there are plenty of people in history who have seen how the church has acted and seen how the church was very involved in the slave trade and colonialism and in racism. And some folks said, I don't want any part of that. But they still want to live a life of love. God said, well, I see that. Lewis is helpful in this. C.S. Lewis. In his last book of the Chronicles of Narnia, he has in the last scene a fella who is serving another God there in heaven. And everyone scratches his head, what are you doing here? And the guy said, yeah, what am I doing here? And the Christ character Aslan said, all who rightly search, even if they do not realize it, are really searching for me. Christ working in ways that we can't comprehend. The Spirit working in ways we don't understand. And someone says, well, what about the verse in John 14? No one comes to the Father but by me. I get that. That's why we're unique. We offer Jesus to people because Jesus is the one that says, I'm not offering the way to some great mystery. I'm not offering the great uh, unknown out there. I'm offering you a way to be, as it says earlier in John's gospel, to be a child of God, to call the creator of the universe, Abba, Daddy, Father. Only Jesus does that. And so, y'all, when we go out and proclaim the love of God in Jesus Christ, we aren't starting with condemnation or fear. We're saying, let me show you a better way a way to know God intimately, like a small child knows her daddy. Look at it this way from Luke 15. When the son is there in the pig pen in the foreign country, he says this, even my father's servants are cared for. Even my father's servants. And what Wesley talks about is that people have faith of a servant where they're trying to earn love. What Jesus calls us to is a faith of a son and a daughter. Of course, I got to tell a story. Uh, you all remember George Foreman, right? You know, y'all, yeah, yeah, remember him, yeah. Uh, and he had an interesting life for sure, so has an interesting life. And, uh, one of the turning points of his life, he was a heavyweight champ of the world, and then he went to fight in the rumble in the jungle in Zaire against Muhammad Ali. You remember the rope of dope and all that? Well, he lost that bout to Ali. Sent him into a tailspin, a great spiritual crisis. And in that crisis, he came to Christ. He became a pastor. He founded a youth center there in his hometown of, of Houston. He led lots of young people to a better path in life. And, of course, he went back into boxing, and he 
formed a company that developed the George Foreman Grill, a great way to cook hot dogs, by the way. <laughs> Just put them right on there and sit in there. Two minutes later, they're done. But George Foreman and Ali stayed together in a relationship, and he saw Ali one time busily scribbling notes and trying to uh, do all these things to, to get people uh, autographs and trying to uh, do these things to help folks out, and, and nothing wrong with that, but Ali, a devout Muslim, was doing all these things, and, and Foreman asked him, why are you doing this? And, he, and Ali said, I want to make sure I do enough to get to heaven. Hear that? And George Foreman said, a man, you can't do enough, but you can receive a gift as a child. What Ali was having was faith of a servant. What Foreman and what we proclaim as Methodist Christians is receive the faith of a child. We experience Jesus as our Savior who introduces us to his Father. Now, I can't answer the question about Gandhi and others going to heaven. That's way above my pay grade. But what I can answer is this. I'm going to proclaim Jesus and live out Jesus and show people Jesus and introduce people to Jesus, this one who introduces us to Father Abba. See how different that is? Starting out this positive notion, rather than condemning or accepting everything, no, we say, let us show you a better way. Let us show you this way to, to the Father. I said there's two things. The second thing is this, from Psalm 139. As I alluded to earlier, we, we are surrounded by this God's grace. Psalm 39 talks about if you go to the highest mountain, God is there. If you go to the lowest depths of the sea, God is there. If you go to the first ends of the earth, God is there. So that means no matter where you are, God's there. Whether you're viewing the beautiful Blue Ridge and the snow-capped mountains, or you're in the depths of the beast of an MRI tube dreading the results, guess what? God is there. You're surrounded by God's grace. It matters not if you are with lots of friends and enjoying a lively conversation with all sorts of people, or if you feel so alone in your room wondering if anybody cares, well, you're surrounded by grace here. God is there. You could be worshiping in a great sanctuary and with beautiful music like we hear week after week with our praise band in this service, or you could be whistling a tune in your car. God is surrounding you there. You could be hearing the applause of heaven as folks like the, the people in this church do are out on a mission trip. His, God is praising you for what you're doing because you're out serving in his name. Or you could hear the encouragement of heaven saying to you as you're there battling an addiction, trying to fight not to do something that you know you ought not to do again and again and again. Guess what? All of heaven is cheering you on, saying you can do it. God is there. You're surrounded by grace. Even when you try to run from it, try to deny it, try to hide from it, God's marvelous grace is all around you. It's all around you. Working in ways that are too marvelous for you to comprehend. 
So, quit fighting it. Accept it. Accept the fact that you're accepted by God and His great grace and love for you. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.